Thank you for joining Mind Your Brain. The mission of this podcast is to improve the quality of life for those affected by a brain injury. We want to introduce you to traditional and cutting edge neuro rehabilitation options so you can reach your highest recovery that's possible. Staying with our theme of student athletes recovery this month, today we're going to talk with the Office of Services for Students with Disabilities at Westchester University in Westchester, Pennsylvania. The work that this department does is essential to the lifelong success of college students. My name is Candace Gant, welcome. I am a traumatic brain injury survivor and founder of the Mind Your Brain at Penn Medicine Conferences and the executive director of the Mind Your Brain Nonprofit Foundation. I'm also so proud to say that I'm on the board of the Brain Injury Association of Pennsylvania. Today, my guest is David J. Thomas. He has been at Westchester University since the beginning of 2020 and has been in the field of disability advocacy and support for more than a decade. Before coming to Westchester and alongside his disability work, he was a member of the English faculties at Temple University, the University of Arts, Virginia Wesleyan University, Old Dominion University, and the City University of Seattle. Wow. He holds a PhD in higher education, an MA in applied linguistics, and an BA in dramaturgy uh, from Old Dominion University in his hometown of Norfolk, Virginia. He completed additional graduate work in, in the Linguistics Society of America's Summer Institute at Stanford University and the Institute on Disabilities at Temple University. Dr. Thomas is the Vice President of Delta Alpha Pi International Honor Society, which recognizes high achieving college and university students with disabilities. He also serves the wider disability community as the treasurer for the Board of Directors of Disability Rights Pennsylvania, where he also chairs the Medical Health Advisory Council. Wow, Dr. Thomas, you are a busy man. Thank you. Thank you for joining us at Mind Your Brain. We're excited to hear about the work you're doing to help amazing students in college reach their highest potential. Thank you. Thank you. I'm very, very happy to be here. Thank you for having me. You're a wealth of information. So let's talk a little bit about it. Is there a personal connection with the job that you have and the position you have for helping students with disabilities? Uh, so I uh, identify as a multiply disabled person myself uh, with a variety of neuromuscular conditions as well as epilepsy. Um, and uh, my family uh, is also uh, comes from a disability rights background. Uh, my mother was a blind wheelchair user uh, toward the end of her life. Um, and so, uh, so we have a, a lot of uh, established uh, time there. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, and she was in education. Uh, she was an associate dean uh, of learning resources. Um, and I kind of followed in her uh, footsteps. And so I've seen and experienced firsthand from a variety of different uh, angles, uh, the difference that an education can have uh, for a person with a disability that might not have access to the workforce otherwise. 
That's amazing. Right. So it's, it's inborn in you and you've been raised through that, the challenges maybe that uh, their disability um, family members have experienced. So, you know, firsthand. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. What does the process of approving accommodations look like in terms of the symptoms and getting proper documentation? Interesting question. There are two uh, prevalent models of disability uh, that are used in higher education, the medical model and the social model. Uh, the medical model focuses more on uh, medical expertise, uh, symptomology, things like that, whereas the social model focuses more on the effect that those symptoms might have uh, on the lived experience of the individual. Um, and individual is the really important uh, word there. Uh, so we focus very much on an individualized process using techniques from restorative practices uh, through restorative justice. And the way that that works is that that uh, takes the lived experience of the student and values it as just as much as their doctor's recommendations because they are the expert um, in their own condition Um, as maybe not in terms of the physiology uh, but in terms of how it affects them um, on a on a day-to-day minute-by-minute basis. And so understanding that disparities do exist in healthcare and the documentation may vary because of this, the level of documentation that may be available, as well as the level of treatment that may be available. Um, We use a a holistic approach that does, you know, balance that uh, lived experience as much as as the doctor's recommendations. Um, And uh, so our professional organization is the Association uh, for Higher Education and Disability. Uh, And a number of years ago, they released uh, guidelines that focus on a holistic approach, which uh, aims at better understanding the student's experience, because we're not providing treatment, uh, we're providing accommodation, we're providing access. Uh, And so those are two very different uh, things. Uh, And so the AHEAD uh, framework focuses first on the experience of the student. So I always start off any uh, meeting that I have with a student saying, I have all this documentation from your doctor and I've read through it and so I understand what your doctor has to say uh, or what your school system or, or you know whatever you've provided has to say but tell me your experience tell me what it is that you uh, need tell me what it is that that you found to be helpful or things that you found to, to kind of get in the way um, and so then after that we focus on the observation of those around them. So the disability services office, their teachers, pastors, social workers, you know, anyone who has uh, experienced coaches, right? Uh, especially talking about student athletes, um, because those are the people who uh, observe them on a regular basis. It also uh, allows disability services professionals um, to use their expertise and to rely on their expertise to understand that if a student is is coming to me and they're relating uh, a situation or an experience that I've heard time and time again, um, I'm not going to require that the documentation from their physician have specific words in there uh, to magically, you know, create accommodations. Um, and so a lot of it has to do with that. And then also the legally, uh, the process is required to be individualized and iterative. So it means that it has to be a conversation. 
Um, so it has to be a conversation between uh, all of the interested parties. And this is where the restorative practices comes in, um, is that the, the student has needs, uh, the university has needs in terms of protecting the curriculum and things like that. Um, and, uh, and then, uh, you know, the disability services office, sometimes parents, sometimes, uh, you know, coaches, athletic programs, all sorts of things. The community. You know, exactly, because the university is a community, you know, it's a, it's a microcosm of a macrocosm. Um, we have everything that a city has. Uh, and so, uh, so kind of taking all of that into consideration. Um, but then also, you know, if you think about it, is that uh, not only are we looking at the effect that, uh, that a brain injury might have on a student generally, but we're also looking at specific circumstances too, right? Because there are things that you're being asked to do in terms of, uh, in terms of lab work or in terms of, uh, you know, uh, studio art classes or, or choir, or there are all sorts of different environments that you might encounter in a university. And they're all going to have different needs. Um, some place, you know, in some situations you may need extra accommodation. In some situations, you might not need any accommodation. Uh, and so it's really a lot of looking at not only the needs that uh, are a result of the disability, but also, uh, and this goes back to the social model, um, mm -hmm. the needs of the environment, right? Uh, the social model basically uh, says that the environment is what's disabling, not uh, the underlying impairment. Oh, that's fascinating. And so it's, it's situational. So you receive a diagnosis, but you also interpret their whole world around them. Yes, to basically accommodations. That's brilliant. And let's talk a little bit about then, how do you coordinate with both the students and the professors and their coaches uh, and any of the other support systems in your university to ensure that the setting up for the students for success? Sure, absolutely. So there are kind of two models. Uh, whenever whenever we're talking about uh, education, there are kind of two models: the the sage on the stage and the guide on the side. Uh, and wow. and I feel like the the role of the disability services office is to promote self advocacy and to give students not only the accommodations that they need, but also the tools that they need so that by the time that they've graduated, they have that self-advocacy, they have that confidence that they need because the university, just like it's a place to try out ideas, a safe place to try out ideas that might fall flat. It's also a place to try out, you know, advocacy skills that might fall flat or, you know, and, and all of these things can, can work with a student uh, so that they can not only advocate for themselves, but also understand what their needs are in a given situation. Um, so uh, I always talk to students about the X factor in class. I always end uh, our discussions about accommodations saying that if you've ever been in a class and you think to yourself, or really any situation, um, but if you've been in a class and you think to yourself, I would really love this class if only X, or 
I would really be doing well in this class or this activity, if only X, then that's probably an accommodation that could be and that probably is reasonable for you to have access to that program. Um, and a lot of times that's just changing the way that students perceive what is a reasonable request and, 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 and what's not, um, and kind of what's there, because sometimes uh, sort of on the opposite end of, of asking for too many accommodations is that folks feel like accommodations are a, a burden on someone by some means. And that's the furthest thing from the truth, because, because if anything, it's providing equal access uh, and, and leveling the playing field, not providing any sort of uh, advantage. I always like to tell folks that, uh, you know, there have been many studies that have proven that uh, students who are given, students without a diagnosed disability who are given extended time on tests and exams don't perform any better than they do if they're given the standard amount of time, whereas students with disabilities who are given that additional amount of time perform substantially better, showing that it's the time that's the that's the barrier to access rather than the disability, and that it's also not providing any sort of you know magical advantage to anyone, uh, you know. And um, because I feel like a lot of times that that's uh, that that is sometimes uh, the concern um, of some faculty is that it's not necessarily fair to. Uh, to the other students. Um, and, and it's my job to explain that, you know, that there are systemic inequities in terms of how universities are set up for students with disabilities, is that, you know, as, even just attending class every week at the same time uh, doesn't work for all people, um, <laughs> you know, and, and I feel like a lot of what we've learned in the last year and a half in going remote uh, is that, um, you know, a lot of the uh, a lot of the things that we've been asking for as people with disabilities for years and years and years, um, we suddenly got um, when everybody needed it. So um, hopefully those things won't go away uh, as we sort of return to uh, normal. But anyway, uh, going back to your question, uh, that does also, it, it does tie into that as well, is that the last year has also given students insight that they might not have had before. They might not have known that they perform better in an online class or that they don't perform well at all in an online right. class, right. Uh, you know, um, so, they have all of these things and all of these different tools that the faculty have learned to use, uh, as well as that students have been exposed to and all of these things. I really hope that, you know, we kind of keep uh, all of those things uh, moving forward. So. Great progress, right, in, in a terrible situation, uh, but you've learned and grown to, to accommodate the disabled community in, in a way that you hadn't expected, which is which is really terrific. And tell me, uh, Dr. Thomas, so can you name some of the accommodations that you that are not common, but you see frequently? Sure, absolutely. So by far the most common um, is uh, providing access to our proctoring center, um, which uh, is a small uh, dedicated space. Uh, there are only about 10 seats in there. Um, we have everything that you 
could possibly need uh, to take a, a test uh, that the university could offer. Uh, so we have uh, in our computers, we have uh, all sorts of assistive technology, uh, we have readers if, uh, if folks need that. We have um, scribes uh, for, um, for anyone that that might be appropriate for. Um, so along with the proctoring center, generally we give extended time, um, which uh, starts at time and a half, or uh, if it's indicated uh, sometimes double time, um, you know, and then also, you know, depending on because everyone's uh, situation is uh, unique, if their uh, if their condition uh, warrants additional time beyond that, then that's something that we consider. Um, there's absolutely nothing that we just have a blanket. No, we don't provide that. Um, that that's not that's not the way that <laughs> that's not the way that we do things. Um, and so uh, so testing accommodations are probably the most common. Um, and then behind that are probably uh, attendance accommodations of some sort, uh, whether that be uh, modified attendance uh, agreement uh, in which uh, professors and students sort of agree at the beginning of the semester that, uh, you know, I have uh, I may miss more than the designated amount of classes. Mm -hmm. uh, and because of that, I need to uh, have an idea of what's in place. And it adds to, especially if a student might have uh, an accommodation uh, for attendance because of an anxiety issue or depression or something like that, um, then not knowing what the fallout of not being in class one day is going to be can add to that. So with the modified attendance agreement, we ask, uh, you know, how are you going to turn in work? How are you going to get the work that you missed? How many absences are acceptable? And how are you going to let the professor know? So that way, all of the expectations are already out there. Nobody has to worry about that the day that something's you know, when there is a crisis, you don't have to worry about it in the moment. Um, so, and then also understanding that the nature of disability is always changing. And so, be, so a student may not be able to contact a professor immediately or before class to let them know that they're going to miss class, or maybe even, you know, for a little while after class, uh, depending on the disability and its effects and, uh, and all of that. And so a lot of it's really just creating, uh, creating that space um, for folks to understand that, that there's no one size fits all. Um, whether it be for, you know, whether it be for folks with disabilities or, or not, uh, you know, there's really no, no one size fits all. Yeah. So, and, and that's want, universal design. Yeah. And you don't want your accommodations to cause anxiety. Once you decide what they are, you don't want them to be, that to be a burden trying to navigate that. So I think that, yes, you're relieving that tension that this is a guideline for us and good communication that would eliminate them any anxiety or any angst that would be caused by that. So what is the most interesting and maybe unusual, one of the X when you ask somebody, you could do this, you could uh, participate in this class if X, what is the most interesting thing that you've come across that you've been able to accommodate? So uh, when I was uh, at uh, another institution, I ran across um, a, a student with uh, progressive vision loss uh, who was a composer. Uh, and uh, he 
was having difficulty with uh, an ear training class, an oral skills class. Uh, and obviously as a, as a, a blind composer, um, mm -hmm. his being able to pass an, a, an ear training class was very important, especially for you know, going on to graduate study and things like that. Um, and so, and this is where my my very you know varied background uh, comes into yeah. into play uh, is that uh, I have you know as as having a background in um, performance, I knew what those classes were like, and even though they're called ear training, they're really very visual courses. Um, there's lots of dictation based on melodies that are played. There's lots of sight reading where you where you get music and then you just have to sing it without uh, you know without any sort of help or, or uh, accompaniment. Um, and so a lot of those things are very visual, even though it's it's all about uh, ear training. Um, and so uh, so this one student was you know was was coming up on on a on a limit of of having failed this course. And so I sat down with the with the professor and and just looked at well, what are the what options do we have here? And I feel that being able to talk to the professor in their own language was kind of helpful. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but at the same time saying, okay, well, how can we help this student pass the class? and still maintain the integrity of what it is that you're trying to teach in the class, right? And, and, then, so, and you absorb it, that you want exactly. the to be, be rewarding to them. Exactly, and so, and this happens with a lot of things. So we had to tease apart the testing methodology from what it was that was being tested. Um, and so by doing that, we realized that everything was very visual and that it doesn't really have any reason to be visual other than the fact that it's kind of always been visual. Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, so what we did is we wound up restructuring that course so that, uh, you know, so that you could accomplish the same learning objectives, but through a different route. Right, you're still right. you're still measuring the same thing, just mm -hmm. not in in the same way. Um, and so, uh, you know, a couple of years later, that professor, you know, told me that he had completely restructured, and he completely restructured the class that semester. Um, but a couple of years later, he said that he had just stuck with it because uh, the students who had gone through that class uh, just said that it was, you know, so much better than than anything they had had before because it really forced them to train their ears more so than uh, kind of a more traditional course. Um, and so, you know, that's where universal design comes in and, and those unintended consequences that we always talk about with curb cuts and closed captions and things like that, that people benefit from them that, that, that are far beyond the intended audience. Indeed, indeed, such a creative solution by you're adapting and investigating what could happen, what's the possibilities to accommodate that student. So many offices of services for students with disabilities, uh, I don't believe, as I've heard, are not as understanding or supportive, I think, as I'm hearing that yours is. Some even refuse even certain accommodations doctors deem necessary for their brain injury patients so they can learn and heal and thrive. So um, how can students then advocate for themselves if they run into that roadblock? They have injuries, you know, we're talking about students across the country. How do they advocate for themselves and how can their peers and faculty in education help them? 
absolutely. Uh, so the first thing is know your rights, disability rights or civil rights, um, you know, it, and be comfortable that you're the greatest expert in your own condition and advocate for that. When someone tries to tell you how you feel or how you're experiencing something, tell them that they're wrong. Tell them that, no, I know what I'm experiencing. <laughs> I, and this is what I need. Um, and getting connected with organizations such as this is also a great start. Um, you know, there are a number of civil rights organizations that are specifically for disabilities. Uh, so I'm part of Disability Rights Pennsylvania, um, which is part of the protection and advocacy system, uh, the National Disability Rights Network. Um, and every state has a PNA, um, and uh, you can reach out to them for uh, for advice. Uh, they all have uh, you know a wealth of information on their websites in terms of uh, specific uh, accommodations and things like that. Um, also, uh, the Office for Civil Rights for the Department of Education um, also provides um, lots of information. If you ever feel like uh, you're being discriminated against, contact the ADA coordinator at your university or uh, institution. Um, if uh, you feel like, uh, you know, and, and you can uh, contact the OCR as well as the office in your um, institution at the same time. Uh, you know, there's no, there's no limiting you. Uh, as far as that goes. Um, and then also just make sure that you're that you're constantly having those conversations. Um, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be about the effect of your disability or disability related, but just stay in touch with your faculty, stay in touch with the disability support office, make sure that, you know, that um, folks know what's going on uh, because it's a lot easier to, to provide that support um, once things start to become difficult or once you start to need the support rather than six months after you needed the support mm -hmm. or six months after the problem started to happen. Sure. Uh, it's a lot easier to keep it from getting tangled up than to unravel it, uh, yes. you know. Uh, Honest the, up front. And exactly. <laughs> And vulnerable as it would be for many students, they don't want it to disclose maybe there's a disability, but I think in advance of your, your college preparation, that, that should be a conversation you should have. Yeah. And then the other thing that I would say, too, is that the role that self-advocacy plays uh, is very important in understanding that in some situations, uh, you will want to share more information about your disability than in others and kind of understanding what those might be and not feeling pressured to share more than you need to in any given situation. Uh, so the only people that you ever need to disclose anything about uh, the, the medical or the, the, the impairment side of your condition is the disability services office. Anyone who's asking for it beyond that, other than maybe the ADA coordinator, um, has no right to it. Uh, and you should refer them back to the Disability Services Office because that's what they're there for, is to, is to provide that buffer and to serve as a gatekeeper in terms of 
uh, evaluating that documentation and, and uh, pulling out what we need from it, but then also protecting its confidentiality. Um, so for instance, our office doesn't uh, disclose anything about a student's disability other than the accommodations that they've been provided and the fact that they're registered with the office by virtue of the fact that they have a letter. Um, but other than that, um, you know, even if a student asks us to explain their condition to a faculty member or something like that, uh, mm -hmm. we won't. Um, because that will help the student, you know, rehearse the, the, the disclosure, you know, well, we'll whatever it is that they might want to do, we'll, we'll help them with it, but we don't, you know, that's not our story to tell. Um, and so, uh, so we will help faculty in terms of how to implement accommodations and what accommodations might look like uh, in different environments or how they might be different from assignment to assignment. Um, but in terms of anything, disclosing anything other than uh, what an accommodation is, uh, that's really not uh, the place of the university to do. Yeah, I think that's really wise because you're encouraging them then to tell their own story or what part of it they want to to be an advocate and have a voice mm -hmm. for their for their accommodations and to express and to start a dialogue. Yep. My reasoning behind that is that a lot of times, especially when they get to university, is that most students with disabilities have been talked about. Um, for a lot of their, you know, pre-K through twelfth uh, grade education, uh, and so uh, so letting them know that that these are their rights and that they that they need to, uh, you know, assert their own rights, um, and that nobody else is going to do it for them, um, is also really important. Um, and it empowers them by giving them, you know, the ability to disclose what they want to, when they want to, and how they want to do it. Um, and you can help them craft that that dialogue and help yep. them establish that so that they have just the right amount of information um, and be able to be a good communicator. Yep, That's absolutely. Brilliant. So Dr. Thomas, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for sharing with us your expertise in supporting students with disabilities. You play such a valuable role in the future of our next generation. And I'm, and I'm so thankful that we had the time. I'm thankful for the job that you do and the time that you spent with us to tell our audience about this, these great services that you offer and as many universities do. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. And to my audience, please subscribe to our podcast, share it with others. As we know, there are millions that are still struggling that you could help by providing this information. You can be a partner with us and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and please leave us some message if you'd like, or leave us a comment. We would like to hear from you. If you uh, send us a recommendation for a future podcast or any comments about this one or other ones, please email us at info, I-N-F-O, for information, abbreviated I-N-F-O, at mindyourbrainfoundation.org, one word, and we'll send you a gift just to hear from you. So don't forget to include your address in your email. And to everyone out there, thank you for joining us. And here's my virtual hug. You are not invisible to us. We see you.